as we come back together for our final session, I want to echo Kelsey's and my gratitude for uh, the invitation to be with you all this last week. It's been our uh, delight and privilege. Um, we will be here, uh, as Ambush indicated, we'll be here through lunch tomorrow, and then we are heading out. My parents are coming up from Florida, and uh, Kelsey's and my 15th wedding anniversary is Friday, and so they're giving us a night out uh, to celebrate, and uh, so we're heading up to meet with them uh, ahead of time, but have thoroughly enjoyed the time. We'll be here for Ambush's session. I'm looking forward to hearing what he shares uh, from the Word uh, with us tomorrow morning. And we've just really enjoyed the time. But let me pray for us as we enter into this final uh, session here. Uh, God, we are uh, grateful to you once again. We come into your presence um, as people who have received uh, the abundance of your goodness in our lives through Jesus by your Spirit. And so we pause now to give thanks for all your many blessings to us over this last week. And um, even as was just shared with us for your protection uh, over this place, uh, and its ministries over these last two years. And God, we pray for the two families uh, uh, that have had these positive tests uh, in the last 24 hours or so. We ask for uh, their safety, their health, their well-being, that you would be with them, uh, strengthen their hearts and encourage them. And God, for all of us, um, I venture to say that no one in the room has not known someone who has been impacted in the last 18 months um, by this virus. And so we continue to seek your uh, favor and your grace in our lives as we uh, confront this reality. And uh, God, as we look to your word uh, one last time this week, uh, here this evening, we ask that you would strengthen and encourage our hearts with the good news uh, of what you desire for us in Jesus. And it's because of him we ask it. Amen. So I was going to start by asking, how are you doing? And there was going to be this whole thing about how our lives are uncertain. And if anything has been taught to us in the last 18 months, it's that we have learned how fragile our well-being is. But Ambush took care of that introduction for me uh, ahead of time. We've learned that there's nothing we can sit confident in and trust that it's not going to shift from underneath us. And I don't know about you, but especially uh, as someone who's been leading a sizable group of people that are used to gathering regularly in large numbers uh, over the last 18 months, I got to June and I was ready to declare mission accomplished, victory won, we're done. I sent out the email saying we're not requiring masks or distancing of any kind in any of our gatherings or spaces and looking towards the fall summer is always a fallow season for us because I've learned that in Michigan, uh, everyone goes places in the summer. They vanish. And so uh, and I know why, because it looks like this. Who would stay in Grand Rapids when you have this going on June, July and August, especially when January, February and March look like they do. And so we were looking forward to fall, and now I am anticipating that I'm probably going to be sending out additional emails that we may be facing some different challenges. And whatever comes, that's what we have learned, or at least what I have learned in the last 18 months, is that when asked the question, how are you doing, it's depended. And at various times, I've not known how to answer that question. What exactly is going on? A lot of things are going on. It depends what I choose to think about. Um, it's always been true, incidentally, and as a pastor, as I walk with people who go through 
battles with cancer, who go through marital difficulties or family struggles or relational struggles or prolonged unemployment or all of the various things that confront our lives, those have always been there. And, and what I've said to people in those circumstances is I see what God is teaching them as they talk about how the Spirit of God is teaching them to trust and to be humbled and to draw near to God for strength and encouragement in those times, I tell them that what they are feeling as real for them is just as real for the rest of us. We just don't see it as clearly. It is true for each of us that our next breath is a gift from the gracious hand of God. It's just that when we encounter difficulties and struggles, we know that better than when we're not. And for the last 18 months, all of us have all at the same time been going through some version of the same storm. Regardless of what shape our boat is in, we're in the midst of the same storm. And so we've learned that our well-being, our comfort and our security and all that goes with it can be something of a mirage. And that's unsettling because as human beings, I think we're oriented to want to see happy endings. We want to know that everything turns out all right in the end. We want to know that at the end of the story, it all works out. And whether it's a personal struggle or a finite circumstance or something like a global pandemic, these things come in and they undermine the confidence that we might have that it is all going to be all right in the end. And so as I thought about sharing this series in Isaiah with you all this week, I thought to myself, Isaiah might be a little bit like off menu, it might be a little wonky, but I'm convinced every word of scripture ultimately bears witness to the truth of the story that God is telling to creation through Jesus. And so every word of scripture is what we call the gospel, the good news. And the good news is a story, and like any story, it is a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the end of this story is spectacularly happy. We are happy-ending people as people who believe in the good news of Jesus. And so as much as Isaiah has all of these kind of dark and twisted passages and corners, and again, we've just hop, skipped, and jumped along a few of them over the last few weeks, the story ends happily. And so this evening, I just want to take a few minutes to spend some time. We're going to be in Isaiah 61. That's going to be our text. The last 11 chapters or so of Isaiah sort of unfold this theme of how God is going to bring everything to completion through Israel and for all the earth. And this points us to Jesus. But Isaiah 61 does that in a unique way. But before we get there, before we get to the end of the story, I think it's important to remind us of the beginning of the story. Scripture is a big book. It's got a lot of different elements to it. And so it's important that we always remember that at the end of the day, the story is simple. That does not mean that the story is not rich and thick and deep and profound. But at the end of the day, it is a simple story that we tell. It begins in the beginning. And in the beginning, God... The God that is revealed in Scripture that exists eternally as three persons in one being. And similar to what I said about the formulas we talk about regarding the cross, I can say with confidence that the one being that is the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful God exists in three persons. And beyond that, I really can't tell you very much. I can't explain how it works or what each of the persons does. I just know 
that that is how God exists. And because God exists in that way, John can say that God is love. If God was just one person and one being, it could not be said that God is love because there would be no other eternally for God to love. Love would be an accident somewhere down the line. But God by nature is a community of loving persons that are so united they are a single being of existence. And because they are defined by their love for one another within this unity, they said to themselves, we need to share this. Love always looks outward and seeks to extend blessing and to share and to give. That's what love is. And so God decided to create. And God created, as Genesis 1 describes, all of this space, all of these settings, the land and the sea and the sky. And then God filled each of those spaces with sun and moon and stars, the heavenly bodies, the birds that fill the air, the fish that fill the sea, including, read Genesis 1 carefully, those great sea monsters. God created the chaos monsters. And one of the Psalms says that he created them to play in the seas. The chaos monsters are God's playthings. And then on the land, the great beasts and the cattle and the insects and the reptiles and all the rest of it. And the Genesis text conveys this creative work of God. And then it gets to the end and it says, then God said, let us make humans in our image. In the ancient world, when you're telling a creation story, the end of the creation story is always the construction of a temple that recognizes that the created world exists for the pleasure of a God. And in the temple, you place the image of the God, the statue that says this space belongs to this God and this God's priests ensure that the God gets what they need from the creation. In the ancient world, humans are created to serve the needs of the gods and that takes place at temples under the control of the priests. Food offerings are brought to literally feed the gods. And so an ancient audience reading the Genesis narrative knows what's coming next. An image is going to be put up in this temple space. And they would have been stunned to see that humans, not just some humans, not just an individual human, not a class of humans, but all humans are the image of God. And that means that all the earth is the temple sacred space of God. And temples were often surrounded by beautiful, lush garden spaces. And so, of course, in the next chapter, what does God do? He creates a garden around his sacred space and installs his image in the garden. Priests to minister, and in a reversal of what people would expect, instead of asking the humans to feed him, God says, I've given you every tree for food enjoy it and exercise care and dominion. And so God created a beautiful temple garden, a beautiful temple garden that was to be governed by the humans as image bearers, consistent with the way that God is. They were to do it in love, always seeking to care for and nurture and look after and promote the flourishing of everything God had created and to make more of it. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. There will never be lack in my creation. You will never have to worry that there will be enough for everyone that I have created to enjoy the fullest of the bounty that I have given them. 
And so your relationships, remember what the status of the original humans was, was naked, unclothed. There's no need for masks or disguises or devices. There's no need for manipulation or control in our relationships one to another or with God. We can be fully known and know fully. There can be trust and transparency and vulnerability and safety because you never have to wonder in the world that God created whether or not your neighbor or God or the created world is for you or against you. Everything in God's good world was working together for one another's good and for the glory, the promotion of the beauty of God. And that's the world that God created. And I said earlier in the week that sin doesn't change that. Sin just refuses to believe it. And so our first parents simply did not believe that that was the case. The serpent, Leviathan, that twisting serpent, crept in and whispered the subtle lie. Did God really say that you couldn't eat any of the trees in the garden? Can you really trust that God is for you, that God is good to you? And that begins this downward spiral of the human's failing to trust that God is good. And it's not long before they can't trust each other. And it's not long after that, that the earth is cursed and begins to struggle against the humans and it all falls to pieces. That's the beginning of the story. And it leads to the middle of the story. In the middle of the story, humans continue because we are image bearers. We can't help ourselves. We're going to go exercise dominion. The only question is in what way? And rather than continuing to expand and to build upon the beautiful temple garden that God created, we build ugly temple cities. Genesis 11 records the first such attempt that humans wanted to make a great name for themselves. They weren't content to be the image of God. They wanted to exalt their own image. And so what did they do? They built a tower to reach the heavens, to exalt themselves, to become like God. And it is God's mercy, not God's judgment that frustrates their efforts. It says, I'm not going to allow you to exercise dominion in this way. It will lead to everyone's hurt. And yet humanity from that point forward continues to build ugly temple cities marked by everything that was not supposed to be part of God's good creation. Instead of imaging God and enjoying open fellowship with God, we create gods in our image and leverage them to control and dominate and exploit one another. We come up with all kinds of devices and strategies and tactics to secure our own position and to avoid honesty and transparency and trust with others. We become warped into selfishness rather than lives oriented towards the good of our neighbors. And so we build something very different than what God had intended. Because God's purposes are not thwarted, God is also at work building something in the middle of the story. See, the middle of the story is not just populated by what we as human beings are up to. God refuses to give his creation over to the forces that would spoil it and destroy it. And so Isaiah's call to ministry hints at this. We didn't spend time in Isaiah chapter 6. We know the scene in the temple, the heavenly temple, when Isaiah sees Yahweh exalted and seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory and the cherubim and the seraphim are there and shouting out their holy, holy, holies. 
and God calls out and says, who will go for us and speak on our behalf and let my servants know how far they have fallen and how desperately I want them to return so that I can continue to bless all the earth. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And that's when God says, go and talk to a people that will not listen. And then Isaiah asks this question, how long? How long, O Lord? You're telling me to go and preach to a people who will not listen. You're guaranteeing me ministry failure. How long do I have to stick at it? How long do I have to stay with it? Because this doesn't sound terribly pleasant. So can I just say it once and be done? How many times do I have to repeat it? How many Sundays or Saturdays do I have to stand on the platform and say what you're asking me to say? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste and Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak. Take note of that reference whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. What God says to Isaiah is, I need to tear down everything they've built. Everything they've built resembles the ugly temple cities that humanity has been building since Babel. And I need to tear it down. But there is this hint of a promise at the end of that sentence that there remains a seed, there remains a stump, that God does not allow that to be the end of the story but that God cannot allow the corrupted things that we have built to stand if we are to bear God's image. And so that brings us to the end of the story. What is it that God is building? And this is where Isaiah 61 comes to us. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking. He's standing in the role of the servant of Yahweh. This is a song by the servant, if you will, rather than about the servant. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh that he may be glorified. God had spoken of tearing down and uprooting oaks in Isaiah 6, and here he says, I'm planting oaks. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of Yahweh. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy." For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make them an everlasting covenant. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring Yahweh has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation 
he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what it's sown to sprout up, so the Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to spout up, sprout up before all nations. You heard the word instead over and over and over in this chapter. This chapter is about all of the reversals that God will bring about. Where there has been mourning, there will be joy. Where there has been ugliness, there is beauty. Several references to garments of praise and garments of beauty, extravagance. Where there has been destruction, there will be things built up and established. Where there has been death, there will be life. New plants bringing forth fruit and sprouting up from the ground. Where there has been wrong and violence, there will be justice and righteousness. All of these things are reversals of the status quo. Where there has been ruins, there will be things built up again. Beauty and glory come to the forefront over and over. And I mentioned earlier, we don't think enough about beauty. Sometimes in our traditions, we can have this sense that to be faithful to God is to be very Spartan in our, and I don't mean that in an MSU, I don't want to get involved in a U of M MSU thing, but like in a, in a very spare sort of way. I think there is something to be said that God did not create a black and white world. God created a world rich in color and beauty because God's glory is beautiful and we need to exemplify that. But the passage starts with, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news and then says to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. That's a special word. And the first, uh, on Sunday morning, I talked about the fact that the prophets aren't necessarily saying anything terribly new. They're saying old things in a new way. And the phrase, the year of the favor of Yahweh, comes straight out of the book of Leviticus. And if we wanted to ask the question, what went so horribly wrong in the middle of the story? If we wanted to isolate it, the prophets give us a clue. Jeremiah says it on two occasions. And Isaiah gives a strong indication of it in Isaiah 58, just a few chapters before this one. And it centers on the fact that the people have not practiced Sabbath well. Jeremiah says it straight up, 70 years the land needs to enjoy its Sabbaths because it had not been given its Sabbaths by the inhabitants. And so God was giving the land its Sabbath rest, and that's why the people went into exile. Isaiah talks about the Sabbath day in Isaiah 58, the purpose of the day being a great leveling that instead of continuing to live off of the labor of others, everyone, including the cattle and the animals and the beasts of burden, get a day of rest. Sabbath is central to understanding God's heart for how we're to live as created beings. It is partly about saying, I cannot work sufficiently to provide for all of my needs. Everything I have is a gift from God. And stopping my work one day in seven reminds me of that. It also reminds me that all of us are image bearers and reminds me that I am responsible for those in my spheres. Because the law says that everyone in your household 
your wife, your sons, your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, and your animals rest on the Sabbath. Jesus talks about the Sabbath a lot, which should also tip us off to this. But the Sabbath was more than a day. Every seven years, the land was to lie fallow. They weren't to plant it or harvest it. And God said, you need to trust me in this because, and I am not a farmer, but I'm told that that does not make good agricultural policy to stop all planting for a whole year and expect that you won't starve. And God says, you trust me in this. You give the land its rest one year out of seven, and I'll make sure that in year six, you harvest so much food that it will last you not only through year seven and year eight while you're waiting for the new harvest of what you've just planted, but you'll still be eating it in the ninth year when you've already harvested the eighth year. You trust me. You put me to the test and you see if my good world is not meant to sustain your lives and not exploit and drop every last ounce of productivity out of the ground. You see, we want to think that the more we work, the more we'll have. And God says, no. Sin twists us to think that way. That's not how I operate. But it gets better because every seventh cycle of seven years, there is a year of jubilee. And it is a year that Leviticus says was the year of Yahweh's favor. Every seven years, in addition to the land lying fallow, all debts are canceled. All credit card statements get marked paid in full, whether they are or not. All servants were released and freed. But in the seventh, seventh year, the 49th year of Jubilee, not only did all of those things happen, but all land reverted to its original owners so that no one ever acquired vast amounts of wealth endlessly. Every 50 years, there's a reset. And Jeremiah makes it known to the people of Judah before the exile, this is why God is going to send you into exile, because you haven't been honoring the Sabbath. You need to do it. And they repent for a hot second. They say, all right, we'll do it. We'll release the workers. We'll cancel the debts. We'll revert the land. And they do it. And then the Wall Street Journal gets a hold of the implications and is like, no, the economy will collapse. We can't possibly do this. Don't you understand? We're running a credit market-based system here. This will not work. And they undo all of it. And all the servants go back to their masters and all the land goes back to those that had acquired it. And it is at that point that God says, see you in Babylon. Sabbath points us to the year of Yahweh's favor. And the servant here in chapter 61 says, I am here to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, to undo everything that human beings have built to their own hurt. And I said before that all of the book, all of the book, not just Isaiah, is ultimately about Jesus. But I find it very interesting that the first time Jesus stood up to preach in a synagogue that we have recorded for us in the scriptures we're told that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. Again, not until I went through and looked at it this time around did I realize that that wasn't just the happenstance reading of the day in the synagogue. It wasn't just a fortuitous circumstance that Jesus happened to read from Isaiah 61. It says he found it. He went looking for it. He read it on purpose. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your 
hearing. And we all know what happened next. A massive revival broke out at Nazareth and all of Galilee was converted and became part of God's great inbreaking and it infected the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And no, he sits down and everybody looks at him. They're just astonished. Nobody's ever said that before. And then somebody speaks up and is like, hey, we know you. You're Joe's kid. Now, if I remember, there were some sketchy circumstances around the time your folks got together. We know you. Your dad's just a carpenter. We know you. And then Jesus proceeds to tell two stories from the Old Testament, one about Elijah and one about Elisha. And how there were bunches of Israelite widows in their day. And there were famines in their days, as there are all the time in the scripture, right? It's just one famine after another. But what always happens anytime there's a famine, God provides. And Jesus says, but God didn't provide through the prophet to those widows. He sent them to Gentile widows. And he sent them not to the lepers of Israel, but he sent them to Naaman, the enemy leper. And what's really interesting, if you go back and check out the story about Elijah and the widow, I just, this is so cool. God doesn't send Elijah to provide for the widow. Remember he gets there and he asks her for food and she's about to give away, eat her last meal. And she does. This crazy bearded guy in the camel getup says to her, give me your last meal. Who are you? And she does, and God provides out of the lack for both of them, uses this surprising Gentile woman to feed the prophet of God. I think God is trying to tell us something. The people of Nazareth reject what Jesus says, and it was when he mentions those two stories that they get so riled up that they drag him outside the city and they're about to throw him off a cliff. But God's purposes cannot be thwarted, and Jesus does that Penn and Teller thing where he just sort of melts through the crowd and he's gone because it's not his time yet. When it's his time, he'll let him take him. When it's his time, he'll go. But in the meantime, he's got work to do and it is to proclaim good news to the poor and release for the prisoners and sight for the blind. And so he's on a mission of ministry to heal and to repair and to restore what we have broken. And he says, this is what I am about. This is what I am beginning to do. And I love the way Luke's gospel and Acts are written because at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, I wrote to you in my previous book what Jesus began to do and teach. What he began to do. You know what that means, right? He's still up to it. He hasn't stopped doing it. And so my only question for us is, does this picture of the end of the story excite you? Does it make you want it? Does it make you crave it? Are you anxious for it? Does it make you want to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Does it make you want to do as we are instructed to do in the New Testament to hasten the day of the Lord, that day that Isaiah talks about? Does it cause you to expect to see it since Jesus has only begun to do what Jesus is doing and he's still doing it? Because if we take seriously the teaching of the New Testament, Jesus has not left the building. The church needs to, but Jesus hasn't. We are empowered by the Spirit of God to be the body of Christ. And so there's two basic responses that I find in my own heart and in those around me when you present this image. One is cynicism. 
It's the response of the Nazarenes. We don't, we don't believe it can work. We're content to wait for Jesus to bring it about at the end, but really for now, we're just kind of white-knuckling it until he gets here. Or there's this naivete that is way too optimistic about how simple it is to fix a broken world. Both responses are inappropriate for us as people of faith. We ought to be looking and watching for what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach in the world. Anxious, beating down the door of heaven like the widow in Luke 18. Until the judge of all the earth delivers justice. And Jesus questioned, but when he does, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he only find our cynicism or our overconfidence? I long for that day. I trust that the words of Isaiah have caused you to have an appetite for that day so that we respond better than the Nazarenes as Jesus proclaims the year of Yahweh's favor. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for what Jesus is doing, for what Jesus has begun to do, and for what Jesus will surely bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so, God, we echo the prayer that has been prayed by faithful followers of our Savior for 2,000 years. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.